0: Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1048. And as we work through the first half of this chapter this morning, if you have any questions, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and uh, ask your question there. We'll take a look at it at the end this morning, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather in this place, uh, to be um, uh, just open about who we are. uh, That we are uh, unafraid of representing you in this community. God, that is a that is a privilege that is not necessarily guaranteed for your people, and and we just help us to be grateful for that. Pray for uh, everyone that is uh, out and about this holiday weekend, traveling or, or doing um, uh, other things. God, I just pray that you would be with them where they're at. That we would, um, whether we're here this morning or somewhere else that we would recognize that you are always with us, that we are always um, uh, living our lives before your face. Um, God, I pray that we would be uh, just aware of how you're speaking to us this morning, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see spiritual things, Gotta pray against the distractions, maybe in our hearts, in this room, uh, in the rhythms of our lives. God, there are so many things that want to pull our attention and our energy. And I, I just pray that you would help us to, you'd give us the strength to uh, just put blinders up over those things so that they don't get in the way. Draw us close to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. My um, my younger daughter Nora is uh, she gets really easily stressed out uh, when she doesn't know what's happening in the future. She uh, will will start talking about plans that we're making, and 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 she just immediately internalizes that uh, little bit of unknownness and it, it starts to ramp her up inside. And it, it's gotten to the point to where, like, if, if she has a dentist appointment, we just won't tell her until, like, we're in the car on the way to the dentist. Because if she knows a few days in advance, it's just, she's just going to freak out for days about it. Even when it's a good thing, um, we, we went on a, a trip to Washington, D.C. last October, and we, we talked about it quite a bit leading up to it. But for months at a time, she would just get all worked up inside about this trip and, and you know, what what color's the plane going to be and what am I going to sit in and where, you know, what's going to happen when we get there and what if something bad happens? And, and she would just, like, get into this spiral of anxiety around not knowing the future. And this morning... In the text in First Thessalonians, Paul is going to comfort the Thessalonian believers because it seems like they've got a little bit of that anxiety as well. They don't know what's going to happen in the future, and they've got questions about it, and it's stressing them out. And they, they know because Paul taught them that Jesus is coming back, but rather than that being a source of joy for them, it's become a source of anxiety. And in these verses, Paul's going to do his best to dispel that anxiety. And he's going to talk about three different things. He's going to talk about the return of Christ and those that do not believe. He's going to talk about the return of Christ and the Christian. And then he's going to talk about why we can trust in Jesus in the midst of the unknown. So starting in verse 1, we're going to take a look at what he's going to call the day of the Lord... And the unbeliever. About the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. For when they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So if you remember last week, we talked about how Paul was giving the Thessalonians assurance about those who had died already in Christ. And he was assuring them that they had not missed the coming of Jesus, that they would be raised from the dead to meet Jesus in the air. And now he transitions to the time where Jesus will return and he wants to tell them about those that are still alive. And he starts with those that are not Christians. He uses the phrase, the day of the Lord, which this is a technical term that comes out of the Old Testament And it's almost always something to be feared. Amos 5.18 says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. In Isaiah 13, he writes, Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners. So the day of the Lord is most often used as a phrase to talk about God's judgment on his enemies. Those that destroy God's people and harm God's creation will someday themselves be destroyed by God. And one of the interesting things about the way Paul uses this phrase is whenever Paul uses the word Lord throughout his letters... He's most likely referring to Jesus. He uses the word God or Father to talk about the Father. He uses the word Lord to talk about Jesus. And so he's talking about the day of Jesus. And I know for, for many of us and, and for most of our culture, we find this really uncomfortable. We, we kind of recoil at the idea that God might be angry, that he might uh, have judgment. And so we try to soften this and remove this, and and a lot of times we'll just kind of skip these parts in the Bible. We've kind of created a God in our mind that is old and grandfatherly and just kind of pats us on the head and says he loves us and has a bowl of candy at his house. This angry judgment language is is frustrating and, and, and uncomfortable. And sometimes we, we even use Jesus as an example, uh, for, as a rationale for why God doesn't act this way. Jesus is, is quiet and smiling and he's accepting and he just doesn't really have any agenda or initiative. He's just primarily interested in affirming whatever it is about me that I like and helping me change the things that I don't. I can do all things like CrossFit and keto through Christ who strengthens me. But then we we read these things about judgment and and that just doesn't sound like the Jesus that I want. But the funny thing is that this perspective is incredibly Western. It's incredibly um, uh, well-to-do. Right? We, we can afford to imagine that God doesn't repay evil because we don't honestly experience that much evil. Miroslav Volf, who grew up in Eastern Europe, writes this. He says, imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have their throats slit your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What he says is if you are from a culture where you have been deeply harmed by injustice The idea that God one day is going to exercise vengeance on your behalf is not a fearful thing, but a comforting thing. And we have so insulated ourselves in our society in the the safety that we have, that we recoil from the idea of God's vengeance when Christians all around the world are hoping for it. Paul uses this Logic in his next letter to the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, for for which you also are suffering, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I've talked about this before, but I, I think it's, I would argue, pretty clear in the New Testament that Christians are meant to lay down the sword and not retaliate against their enemies. We're called to love our enemies and turn the other cheek and Paul and Jesus' rationale for this is that God will take care of it for us. We don't have to be people that re- retaliate, take vengeance, and fight for ourselves because Jesus will fight on our behalf. And when's this going to happen? Paul doesn't say. But he's been taught by Jesus. Matthew 24, Jesus says this, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. Then they didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken in two. This is why you're also to be ready because the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. See, we're not meant to know exactly when this is going to happen. Jesus says at that time, according to his human nature, he didn't even know when it was going to happen, and so we shouldn't expect to know either. But notice specifically in this part of the passage, Paul is speaking to non-Christians, those that do not know Jesus. They will not be expecting Christ. And he says it, Jesus will return like a thief in the night And the reality of of this metaphor is that you don't go to bed thinking that your house is going to get broken into. If you did, if you're like, I'm not sure when the thief is coming, but I know he's coming tonight, you'd stay up and wait for him. You're not going to be anxious about your house getting broken into because it's outside the realm of possibility for you. Maybe that's not true for some of you. I I don't know, but I never, ever, ever go to bed thinking, I hope the house doesn't get broken into tonight. It just doesn't cross my mind. I don't think about it at all. According to Paul, the return of Jesus isn't on most people's radar. It's not on my bingo card for 2023. Paul says the one that is outside of a relationship with Jesus, is totally unaware of what is coming. Some of you may remember uh, COVID. You guys remember COVID? The, the whole, uh, you know, stocking up on toilet paper, wearing a mask, wiping down your groceries with an alcohol wipe. How many of us were doing that before March of 2020? Probably not any of us right cuz we just didn't have an awareness that that was even a thing and so paul says the the one who is outside of christ just has no concept of his return and he says that they will that they will say peace and safety peace and, peace and security and this is probably a swipe at the roman government The Thessalonians lived at a time in the first century which was called the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. And the reality is the Roman government killed a lot of people to ensure that the empire would be peaceful. They had legions of military stationed all around the borders to protect them from the barbarians. And they were proud of it. They talked up the Roman peace. Uh, one of their philosophers, uh, Valerius Patriculus, such good Latin names, he wrote this about the founding of Rome. He said, on that day, there sprang up once more in parents the assurance of safety for their children, in husbands for the sanctity of marriage, in owners for the safety of their property, and in all men the assurance of safety, order, peace, and tranquility. See, the Roman machine was proud of itself and how it had brought peace to the people. They had a strong military, secure borders, and economic prosperity, and they made it clear that Rome was responsible for giving this to the people. This would become a problem for the Christians in later years because to be a good citizen of the Roman Empire, you were required to swear your allegiance to Rome once a year to prove that you were a good citizen. You had to offer a sacrifice to the Roman goddess Roma, not because you actually believed in this deity, but because this was the symbol of your citizenship. And the Christians, they just wouldn't do it because they swore their allegiance to Jesus alone. If you've ever read about, or in the, in the popular imagination of the Roman Empire, you've seen Christians being burned at the stake or thrown to the lions. These were not crimes for having a weird religion. These were crimes of treason. And the Christians who were peaceful, and in every way, model citizens wouldn't give their allegiance to the Roman machine, and they were persecuted and killed for it. We see this beginning to bubble up in Thessalonica in Acts 17 when Paul goes there. The citizens of the city say they are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, Jesus. See, the Christians risked the wrath of the Romans because they, the Romans saw national patriotism as directly connected to prosperity. And if the Christians wouldn't worship the emperor and the Roman national gods and something bad happened, well, it's probably the Christians' fault. And so in order to maintain their society, they required the Christians to submit to allegiance to Rome, and they wouldn't do it. And Paul says, destruction will come for this world when they least expect it, when things are good, when the government has given them security and safety. And then his third metaphor, he says, it will be like labor pains. And this is meant, I think, to illustrate that once this process begins, once the day of the Lord starts... It's going to continue until it's finished. I've never been in labor, but I know some people who have. And it seems like while, while it, is, that it is possible to have false labor, it's at a certain point, there's this kind of light bulb of, uh-oh, I think it's time. And at that point, we're going to have a baby. And Paul says that there is going to be a point where Jesus is going to return, and at that point there's no stopping it and even though and, and we, we get a little bent out of shape about this we, we try to we try to predict what that looks like, right the The day of the Lord was was probably gonna be around a thou, the year a 1000, because that makes sense. Or the day of the Lord had something to do with Emperor Charlemagne. Or the day of the Lord, maybe, maybe Napoleon's the Antichrist. Or maybe uh, it has something to do with the Nazis, or the Cold War, or Osama Bin Laden, or fill in the blank. And in every generation we have this, I, this need to guess. But it hasn't happened yet. There's all this false labor going on. But someday it will start in earnest and Jesus will come back. But because it hasn't, it's a reminder that God is so patient with us. Every day, every year that goes by is another opportunity from a world, for a world that's rejected Jesus to turn away from sin to trust in Christ, to bow their knee in allegiance to Jesus as their king. Peter says it like this in 2 Peter 3, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance." but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved in the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. This is the grace of God for the world that at any moment he could decide we're done and he holds off and he holds off. And if, if anyone in, in this room this morning, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, Today is an opportunity to come out of the darkness and to be adopted in the family of God, to trust in Christ for your security and your safety instead of anything else. Because none of us knows how many more opportunities there will be to do that. Then Paul moves on in verse 4 to the day of the Lord and the Christian. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation." Paul tells the Thessalonians, unlike the rest of the world who's going to be shocked when Jesus returns, because that's just totally not on their radar, he says, we will not be surprised when Jesus returns. And it's not because we have better like secret information, but it's because we are a different kind of people. John Stott says there are two reasons why people are taken by surprise when a burglar breaks in. The first is that the burglar comes unexpectedly during the night, and the second is that the householder is asleep. We can do nothing about the first reason, but we can about the second. Similarly, Christ's coming is definitely going to be unexpected. The solution to our problem lies not in knowing when he will come, but in staying awake and alert." The nightness or the dayness of the coming of Christ depends on the perspective of the person witnessing it. Paul says that the way that we live our lives will equip us to be awake and alert at the coming of Jesus. We won't be caught off guard because of the kind of people that he has made us into. Remember in the movie Home Alone? Like the inciting incident in that movie is the, the McAllister family is going on vacation, and there is a power outage that screws up their alarm clock, and the airport van shows up at the house at the right time and knocks on the door, but everyone is asleep, and there's pandemonium, and in the midst of the pandemonium, they, they leave Kevin behind. It wasn't that they weren't expecting the van to show up. They were. They had it on their calendar. They'd made the appointment that the van was coming to pick them up from the airport, but because of their being asleep, they were surprised by it. Paul says, church, you're not going to be surprised when Jesus returns because you are spiritually awake. And then he tells us what that looks like. And the first thing he says, and he says it twice, is he says that, well, because we exercise self-control. That's kind of a weird, just a, a, a weird thing to say, right? Like, the, you, know, you know why you're gonna see Jesus coming back? You know why you're gonna be ready? Because you're self-controlled. But he says it twice. This is one of the fruit of the spirit, right? This is something that God supernaturally gives us self-control. And it's a discipline that in our lives, it mediates pleasure, right? Getting a root canal doesn't require self-control because nobody wants that. Nobody has to go like, I don't know. I'm going to have to stop. I, I don't need another. That's fine. Thanks. You, know, th- th- you don't need the energy to do that. It's when you are experiencing pleasure that you require self-control, And pleasure is good. It's a gift from God. But self-control recognizes that sometimes pleasure gets in the way of spiritual alertness. Paul uses drunkenness as a metaphor. John Chrysostom says, The drunkenness he here speaks of is not from wine only, but that also which comes of all vices. For riches and the desire of wealth is a drunkenness of the soul, and so is carnal lust. And every sin you can name is a drunkenness of the soul. And this is one of the reasons why we have spiritual disciplines of abstinence, why we we fast and we practice simplicity and silence and solitude, because periods of self-control heighten our spiritual senses. And this is really easy to see with regards to alcohol. The effects of drinking too much alcohol happen pretty quickly. We lose self-control. We say things we probably shouldn't say. We uh, do things we, in other circumstances, wouldn't do. But you can think about other things as well. Think about how we all talk about being in a food coma at Thanksgiving. What does that mean? Our senses have been dulled, and we blame the chemical in the turkey that isn't really enough to do that. But it's, we still, we blame it on the turkey, right? Like, it's, it's, it's we just can't even think right now because we ate too much. Or what if you're, you're just having a really good time with people and you lose track of time? It's the same kind of thing, right? Pleasure of all kinds, dulls our spiritual senses. And that doesn't mean that it's bad, but it means that we need to mediate that and moderate that with the gift of self-control. And periods of self-control heighten our spiritual awareness. And Paul says, you guys, Thessalonians, you have self-control. And that's one of the things that will allow you to be ready for the return of Christ. And then he says, we need to put on the armor of faith love, and hope. And this is the first time in the scriptures that Paul uses the armor of God as a metaphor. And he takes this from Isaiah 59, where Isaiah writes, he put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Isaiah is talking about God responding to the world filled with injustice by arming himself for war to fight against it. And Paul applies this metaphor to Christians in this passage, in Ephesians 6, in Romans 13, and in 2 Corinthians 6. He likes it a lot. But we aren't called to execute judgment on the world. That's God's job. But we are called to identify ourselves with God who does. And what is the thing that protects us from this judgment? Faith love, and hope. And these are the three virtues that Paul opened this letter with in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. He says, we recall in the presence of God, our, our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're meant to be people that are marked by these things. Faith, trust, allegiance to Christ, love for God and our neighbors, and Hope. And hope in the scriptures is not like, man, I just really hope I win the lottery. Hope is a settled expectation that something is going to happen, that we are sure that Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to bring about his kingdom of justice and righteousness. It hasn't happened yet, but we know it will. That's what our hope is. Overall, Paul says, between the self-control and our confidence in Christ... We're to give ourselves to him for our lives and our future. And then if there's any more anxiety about this, Paul lays out some reasons why we can trust in Christ. In verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Paul says that we will not be swept away in the coming judgment because we will be saved by Jesus. And he says, Jesus who died for us. Why would Jesus die for us? Why would Jesus go through all of that to save us and then allow us to experience God's wrath? We learn that that Jesus took God's wrath for us on the cross. That's what the cross accomplished is, is we deserved death. We deserved the penalty for our sin. We were rebels and enemies of God. And Jesus took our place. He stood in that gap and paid that penalty on our behalf. We have been spared God's wrath because of Christ's blood. There is no wrath of God left to pour out on you and I. If we are Christians, that penalty has been paid. And this is so important for us to internalize because I don't think we often, always do. So many of us walk around in our lives questioning whether we really belong to Jesus. And if you, by by faith have, have believed in his love for you and his grace for you and his work for you on the cross, if you've trusted in him, then you are accepted by him, Christian. You are loved. You are secure in him. There's nothing that's gonna take you away from him. And you are significant. You matter. Your life has purpose because of who he is and how he loves you. And I know not everybody struggles this way, but I know some of us, we, we live in fear that, that maybe we're just not good enough. We, we know how dark our hearts are and we think maybe, maybe Jesus loves other people because they have it all put together and we, we pretend. But, but me, there's something about me that's just extra broken. How could God possibly love me? Maybe he doesn't really love me. Your sin is not too great to have been paid for by the cross of Christ. And if you believe that, if those, if those thoughts enter your mind, if you have doubts about the love of God for you, that is, that's a lie that is coming from the enemy. Do not believe it. A couple, a couple reminders from God's word. John 1, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. We have been, we've been adopted into his family. We are beloved sons and daughters. Those of you that have children, think about how you love your children. God's love for you is orders of magnitude greater than that. Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The power of Christ on your behalf far outweighs the power of your own sin. In Ephesians 2, for you are saved by grace through faith and it is not of yourselves, it is God's gift, not from work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are saved not because we did something great, not because we earned it, not because we did the right list of good deeds, but because of God's love for us, because he wanted to save us. And Ephesians 2.10, which we often leave out, is so important that we have been saved for good works. We've been given a job to do. We matter. We're not just like extras. God was like, I should probably save these guys too. No, we count in God's economy. We've all been gifted, created, so that we would be about his business in the world. And, and not so that we can stress out about that, like he's going to come down on us like a, like a bad boss, but so he can rejoice in us like a proud parent. And Christian, you can rest in this. You can be sure of this. You can know that you are his. And Paul says, according to this text, that this idea that Jesus is going to come back for his own, this is an encouragement. Just like the last section was, we are to encourage each other and build each other up in these things. And just as a side note, like, we need this. We need to be built up like this. And I, I am... I shouldn't be, but I'm constantly amazed at how often I'm in conversation with someone who just needs to hear that Jesus loves them. Because for those of us in here that are Christians, we would all say that. We would all say, yeah, like God loves me, God died for me. I know all that stuff, right? But in the moments of our lives where things hurt, we so easily forget when we're lonely, When we're depressed, when work is rough, when family's hard, when we're just alone up in our heads. Like, just my encouragement to all of us this morning is be the person that reminds someone that they are loved by God. Build each other up, like Paul says. As we wrap up this morning, I want to talk a little bit about just where our focus should be with regard to the return of Christ. The church spends a lot of energy trying to connect biblical prophecy with current events. And I understand the draw of that, but I also think it's ultimately a waste of time I don't think we're going to figure it all out. The church has been trying to figure it out for 2,000 years. Who's the Antichrist? What nations comprise the 10 toes of Daniel chapter two? When is the temple going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem? None of this is important. (laughs) It might be interesting, and there's nothing wrong with being curious, but it's not our priority. And I know too many people who've been sucked into this idea that that my job is to decode the circumstances surrounding the end of the world, and that's the only thing that matters. And what I've seen too many times, ironically, is the person that devotes themselves to unraveling prophecy is no longer that interested in Jesus. Which the whole point is that we would rejoice in Jesus. In Titus 2, if you're, if you're in a community group, we're working our way through Titus right now. Um, I don't think anybody's here yet, but spoilers, I guess. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ, Jesus Christ. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for Himself a people for His own possession, eager to do good works. This is what Paul says to Titus it means to be ready, to be alert to be eager to do good works, to be about the business of our Lord Jesus, to put away worldly lusts and engage in the present world in a way that invites others into experiencing the salvation that's being offered to them. And if we focus on that, I think we'll be more fruitful than focusing on so many of the details that we don't quite understand anyway. Before we wrap up, I want to offer one more reason why unraveling all of the prophecy of the second coming is going to be difficult, if not impossible, and, and that's because I think it's supposed to be. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, "'We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, and not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing.' On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what Paul is saying there, he's, he's talking about the rulers of this age, and that's um, one of the, the phrases that Paul uses to talk about the spiritual powers that are, um, are uh, governing the world, the powers of darkness that that rule the world right now. And and he says, if, if they had known what the plan was, if they had known that from before time began, God had set in motion this plan where his son would come to the world to die for the sins of his people and be raised from the dead, if that was the whole centerpiece of salvation history... If God's enemies had known that, they never would have gone along with it. They wouldn't have let Jesus be crucified if they knew that that was the key to their downfall. We know that on the cross, Jesus defeated the powers and principalities, the rulers of this age, that he destroyed the power that they had over the world and that they're coming to nothing. And if they had known that that was the plan, they wouldn't have gone along with it, Paul says. And so I would say, similarly, that Jesus' second coming is gonna roll out the same way. The powers and principalities have been defeated on the cross, but they're still running around trying to destroy Jesus' people. Their ultimate defeat is coming. But just like... The prophecies of Jesus' first coming, I think the prophecies of Jesus' second coming are intentionally vague because there are still forces at work that want to see Jesus and his people destroyed. My guess is that one day we will all look back on these texts about the second coming and think, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. But right now, it's a little bit fuzzy because I think it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be given enough to know that we still win in the end, that Jesus is going to return, that he's going to defeat the powers of darkness and put an end to injustice and set up a kingdom of goodness and righteousness forever. And today we're called to hope and to be about his business, eager to do good works, to love our neighbors until the day that he returns. Sometimes when when Nora gets spun up about the future, she just kind of orbits her own anxiety, and it it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And one of the things that we have to remind her of is, hey, you know what? No matter what happens, you can trust mom and dad because we love you and we're gonna take care of you, and we're gonna not let anything bad happen to you. Do you believe that? And she'll go, yes. Okay, take a deep breath. It's all gonna be okay. And I think that's a good word for all of us. Whether we're a little bit fearful of the future, or whether we get just a little bit too excited about the future and spend our time uh, you know, trying to figure out who what the mark of the beast is, no matter what pole we land on there, God loves you. God, Jesus died for you. He's gonna come back and get you. Do you trust him? If we can say yes to that, we can find rest. And so my encouragement, just like Paul's, is that we would be quick to encourage one another to build each other up in that assurance that we are loved and that one day Jesus is going to right all of the wrongs. Communion, as we, as we eat this meal every week, this is a sign of Jesus' love for us. It's a picture of his death on our behalf. If, if you don't belong to Jesus, if, if you are living in darkness, it's just, it's just bread and juice. But for those of us that are his, who are, like Paul says, children of the day, children of light, it's a promise. That Jesus drank the cup of judgment so that you could drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood. That you could be freed from the wrath of God that your sin deserved. And so I would invite all of us this morning who have trusted in Christ to come up and take the communion meal together, the bread and the, and the cup, take it back to your seats and, and just meditate for a moment on the fact that you are loved by God, that you belong to him and that he will take care of you. And as we continue to worship together, We'll recite the Nicene Creed, which affirms that Jesus will return for his people. It affirms that that he will return as judge of the world and that he will right all of the wrongs.